Welcome to the Frontline Gastroenterology podcast, based on the paper, How to Manage a High Output Stoma, published online in Frontline Gastroenterology in 2021. My name is Dr. Philip Smith, social media and associate editor of Frontline Gastroenterology and consultant gastroenterologist at the Royal Liverpool Hospital, Liverpool, United Kingdom. And I extend a very warm welcome to Dr. Jeremy Nightingale, honorary consultant gastroenterologist and intestinal failure specialist from St. Mark's Hospital, London, United Kingdom. Dr. Nightingale, or Jeremy, if you don't mind me calling you that, thank you so much for joining me today to do this podcast on this really, really important area, which I think I'm allowed to say as a fellow gastroenterologist is a is a pretty crucial area. It's often not well recognized even by gastroenterologists and, and surgeons alike, or really even managed uh, by healthcare providers sometimes very well. Patients, as you know, are often told if they've got a really high output stoma to drink more water, which is um, often the, the worst advice that they can get. Which really leads me into um, my first question in your paper about what is a high output stoma and how common is it? Well, thank, thank you, Phil. High output stoma, or indeed a high enterocutaneous fistula, is when the losses of water, sodium, magnesium from the fistula or stoma give rise to dehydration. It's quite difficult to put an exact figure on the output volume, as it depends very much upon how much is taken in orally. But in general, if someone's producing more than one and a half litres per 24 hours, it may cause problems of dehydration. High output stomas occur in a high number of patients, up to a third following surgeon, particularly common after loop ileostomy or after there's a significant ileal resection. Problem may persist long term, about 5%. Though if you start looking at concentration of sodium in the urine, the number becomes quite high at about 13% overall ileostomists. I think at this time, it's also important just to mention that patients who have uh, jejunostomies, which is the commonest cause of a high output, do not show any improvement at all in their output with time. What you get after the operation is what you've got forevermore. Thank you. That's really clear. And Jeremy, you've partially alluded to this already, but how do patients typically present? Well, patients can present straight after surgery in the fact the surgeons can't get the patients off in intravenous fluids. And that's quite commonly the situation we see as a nutrition support team. Alternative, maybe with long-term problems where they're getting recurrent admissions with dehydration, sometimes with renal failure that can be really very severe. Sometimes it can be milder and they're just presenting with cramps, continuously feeling thirsty. Their stoma bag may be leaking and as a result getting very sore skin. Thank you. Again, very clear. And I'm sure lots of people listening to this will have experience of seeing patients like that. You've mentioned one of the commonest causes, uh, jejunostomy so far. What are the other common causes of a high output stoma? Well, if we talk about acutely, in the first three weeks of an operation, things like sepsis, a continuing ileus, Drugs such as metoclopramide, which stimulates gut motility, is quite a common cause you'll see in the post-operative period. And if you stop it, the high output goes. Patients who've been on long-term opiates and suddenly they're stopped around their operation can have problems of opiate withdrawal and a high output. Someone who's been on steroids before an operation for a long time and they're suddenly stopped can have an Addisonian-like crisis and have a high output, which does resolve straight away if you give them some hydrocortisone. 
Clostridium difficile can happen. It can happen in the small bowel. And then lastly, something I've only become aware of more recently is if there's a segment that's ischemic, often suggested by persistently low albumin, that can give rise to a high output stoma. Then we've got in the chronic, well, short bowel patients who essentially have a jejunostomy, less than two meters of remaining small bowels, by far the most common group. But the other group not to forget that are extremely common are those who are getting intermittent bowel obstruction. And as the obstruction gets better, then they tend to have the high output from their stoma. We've mentioned ischemic segment. And some of the other things that one's come across over the years are patients who have celiac disease, which if treated, the output can get better. You suspect that if the gut length tends to be relatively normal and they've still got a high output. Thyrotoxicosis can do it, as can pancreatic insufficiency. You discuss also in your paper why patients get a high output stoma with a jejunostomy. Could you go through this for our listeners as to why they get to the high output? I mean, there are several reasons. Providing one of the causes I've already mentioned isn't responsible, and we're just left with a patient with a short bowel or a jejunostomy, then the problems are they're losing the normal daily secretions they produce in response to food, which I've estimated about four litres per 24 hours, and there's not time for those to be absorbed. The second reason is drinking hypotonic fluid. Fluid normally has that we drink has no sodium in it, but the stomal output always has about 100 millimoles per litre. The jejunal lumen can't concentrate its contents. So if one drinks something like tea, coffee, orange juice with no sodium in it, then this will get concentrated in the jejunal lumen to give a sodium concentration of 100 millimoles per litre, which is subsequently lost. And this is one of the most important reasons for a high output stoma, particularly of sodium loss. Other reasons are gastric acid hypersecretion, but there's no evidence for this in the long term in humans. There's some evidence in animals with denervated gastric pouches. Also, there's rapid gastric emptying and small bowel transit is increased in patients with a jejunostomy. Your paper um, goes through nicely the assessment of patients with a high output stoma. I wonder for our listeners, could you give a brief overview of this? Well, in assessing the patients, one's trying to look for causes other than a short bowel as cause causing the problem, particularly intermittent small bowel obstruction. When one talks to the patient, one assesses whether they've got thirst, cramps, faintness, problems with their stoma. And in looking particularly for intermittent obstruction, this sort of patient who comes in periodically with a high output stoma and then it seems to resolve and they get better for a time, you may get a history of colicky abdominal pain, the stoma may stop working, and it's as the obstruction resolves they get the high output and present to hospital. These types of patients will often say they have a very noisy abdomen and people can hear their bowel sounds from the other side of the room. Other signs you may be looking for is abrupt sudden loss in weight of several kilograms. You may find a tachycardia, a postural drop in blood pressure or low urine output. I'd also encourage anyone to look at what the stomal output looks like. Watery green output tends to suggest a a high stoma. And also look at the stoma itself, because this is where narrowings can occur. It's the commonest place for intermittent obstruction. In terms of measurements, one looks at the white cell count, urea, creatinine, the albumin for ischemic segments, magnesium as hypomagnesemia is common. One checks the thyroid function tests blood tests for celiac, perhaps a cortisol and a urine sodium. 
One may look for clostridium in the stomal output. In terms of radiology, some sort of contrast follow-through is particularly useful. Can be a barium follow-through, CT enterography or MRI enterography, all are, are valid and all of them can measure the remaining length of intestine and also give an idea of the quality of the remaining length of bowel. Thank you, Jeremy. An excellent overview again. And I, I know during that you mentioned about hypomagnesemia being common. Is there a reason particularly for this and, and is it important? Well, low magnesium is very common in these patients, particularly those with a high jejunostomy. Reasons are not totally clear, but some of the suggested ones are that these patients are chronically on the dry side, so they have high aldosterone levels, and the secondary hyperaldosteronism results in more sodium retention from the kidney with a subsequent loss of magnesium and indeed potassium from the kidney, and that may contribute Terminal ileum colon are sites of magnesium absorption, though in fact most is absorbed passively in the jejunum. Another reason is that unabsorbed fatty acids from fat in the diet complex with magnesium and indeed calcium, so it's then lost in the stool. And more recently, one's described the problem of proton pump inhibitors, which can affect the active transport of magnesium in the proximal bowel, and certainly they're not an uncommon cause of low magnesiums. And it's certainly one of the things one tries in somebody with persistent hypomagnesemia is to actually stop the proton pump inhibitor. Now, while magnesium is reported to cause many things, often in association with a low calcium, such as fatigue, depression, irritability, muscle weakness, cramps, tremor, arrhythmias, and even convulsions. But this is slightly different to the patients we see, and I've seen many who present to clinic with levels even as low as 0.2 millimoles per litre, who really have very few problems. I do think magnesium depletion on its own may cause a coarse tremor and muscle cramps, but I'm not so convinced of its significance otherwise. Okay, thank you. That's, that's very, very helpful and useful to, to understand that. Can you give an overview of how you actually treat a high output stoma for our listeners? Well, here we'll assume that we're dealing with just a patient who's got a short bowel jejunostomy type situation. There's no actual other cause or no obstruction um, in the bowel. So the immediate thing is to obviously rehydrate a patient and correct their renal function. Generally, try and avoid dialysis because dialysis often takes off more fluid and it can make the renal failure worse or make it more, become more chronic. One of the things you're trying to do in correcting dehydration is to get rid of thirst. While somebody is thirsty, they cannot resist having to have a drink. And as we've said, that's likely to make a situation worse and cause more sodium depletion. Once one's, the patient has got the normal renal function and thirst is better, then one goes about restricting their oral hypotonic fluid. That's basically everything we normally drink, tea, coffee, orange juice, etc. And reducing it down to less than one and a half litres, sometimes less than a litre per 24 hours is what's done. And it's crucial not to tell the patients to drink as much as they can. I, I think that message is gradually getting through. And that's the one thing you mustn't do, as Phil mentioned at the beginning. Then the next stage is to encourage them to drink or sip a solution which contains glucose and saline or a glucose polymer, and you're aiming for a sodium concentration of 90 to 120 millimoles per litre. There's a St. Mark's solution used for this commonly in the UK or diorolite. Occasionally just giving many salt capsules can uh, help. 
then if those two measures alone are not enough to reduce the output and allow a person to manage fairly well orally, then one can give drugs that slow gut transit, such as loperamide, and you can give doses between 4 and 24 milligrams four times a day, ideally half an hour before food, often tipping it out of the capsule. And, and that may help, though it can be quite difficult to take that many loperamide. Codeine phosphate can be added in as well, though I have problems with it because it does cause addiction and it can cause problems, particularly in the elderly. Then the next line of drugs is really for the patients who have the net secretory output. So they're putting out more from their stoma than they're taking in orally. And in these ones, if you reduce their gastric secretion, which is about two litres per 24 hours, you can reduce the output. And it seems to be just in that group they work. The data is all on omeprazole. One can give omeprazole uh, 40 milligrams once or twice daily. It gets absorbed relatively high in the gut. And it does often work. You can check the pH of the stomal output and see that it's greater than five to see you're giving an adequate amount. Octreotide used to be used a lot in the past, though we're not so keen on that now, uh, partly because it causes gallstones. In addition, there's other other coming treatments, such as the peptide growth factors, of which teduglutide is the best known, which may be useful in the future, particularly for trying to get patients off parental support. Thank you. That, that's a really expert overview and, uh, and made very simple for our listeners. You were talking just about parental support. Can you predict which patients are likely to need long-term parental support, so fluid and or nutrition as well? Yes, it's not always totally clear, and it depends very much how they're responding to the treatments uh, and how they do when you send them home as whether if they keep coming back in uh, and needing parental support, then you, you may end up putting them on long-term support. But in general, if someone's got a normal functioning gut of more than a metre measured from the DJ Fletcher, they ought to manage on an oral regime and not need extra parental support. If they're not managing and they're losing weight and muscle mass, then parental support may be needed. And often one can start with giving subcutaneous saline, a litre containing about four millimoles of magnesium sulfate, and infuse that over 12 hours. And that's okay if you're using it about uh, two or three times a week, but it's not so useful if you're giving it every single day because it's much harder to set up and it does run in slowly, whereas a a litre of saline can go in uh, via a central line over about four hours. Thank you. Um, Could I ask you about surgical options for patients with high output stomas to try and reduce stoma output? What's available? I mean, this is not not, uh, uh, always great. The most useful and common thing to do is to look to see if there's any colon that's out of circuit. And if you can bring back any colon much more than 30 centimetres into circuit and joined up to some jejunum, you will likely get rid of the problem completely of the high output. Uh, the, the bit of colon produces both peptide growth factors and factors such as PYY that slow down transit. And it's very, very effective. And, that, and that's why most patients who have a mesenteric infarct and have a jejunostomy initially later on have their colon brought back into circuit. There is interest in doing serial transverse enteroplasty, the STEPS procedure. It has some success, particularly in children with a dilated bowel. There has been work reversing a 10 centimeter segment of small bowel. Used to be done in the past, but often it causes trouble and can cause sort of uh, obstructive problems later. Small bowel transplantation, its results are getting very much better with this. 
should certainly be considered in those with a very short bowel, maybe less than 30 centimetres to a jejunostomy. And if they're getting any complications, particularly liver disease, and these patients should be picked up early and discussed with transplant centres early on, certainly before any liver disease uh, happens. What other issues do patients with short bowel and a high output stoma have? I mean, the difficulty of having a a high output stoma is that the bag has to be emptied very often. And that can give rise, particularly if anyone's going out, to a fear of eating because the bag may fill up very quickly and they'll keep needing to go to the toilet. The patient's also got the problems that a bag that fills up may become detached and leak and the skin round the stoma can become very, very sore. Other things are that they may have poor drug absorption. In these patients, you certainly don't give any slow-release preparations, and you ideally want a drug that's got a short time to its peak level, and also a drug with the biopharmaceutical classification 1, that means high solubility and permeability. And, and there's currently a, a BIFA top tips you'll find on the BAPEN website, which uh, uh, discusses that in more detail. Thank you. And a final question now. How do you monitor your patients post-discharging them from a hospital environment? I think one tends to see the patients when they're stable, probably about every three months. It's got to keep aware all the time that none of the treatable causes suddenly appear, particularly the obstruction. So when one sees them, one asks about thirst, whether they feel dry, whether they're getting cramps. Cramps particularly occur with sodium depletion. Uh, And interestingly, if you give somebody just table salt to take, it will get rid of the cramps very quickly. It's not not a long-term solution, but a good emergency one. You'll ask them whether the medication comes out unchanged in their stomal output, because you may have to adjust it if that's the case. In examining them, one looks at their weight to see whether that's stable, looks at their heart rate and postural blood pressure. One measures things. The random urine sodium concentration is probably one of the most useful things. If it comes back as less than 20 or unrecordable, the person is likely to be sodium depleted and need more sodium supplements, whether that be orally or parenterally. In terms of other routine bloods, we'll include urea and electrolytes, magnesium, uh, and the B12 certainly measure every year or two as terminal ileum is usually missing in these patients and B12 deficiency may well occur. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Nightingale, for doing this podcast and spending time giving us your expertise and insights into this really important area. And once again, uh, congratulations on your your paper being published in Frontline Gastroenterology. It is one of our most popular papers. To our listeners, if you want to access the paper, there is a uh, link underneath this podcast. So do click on that and read the paper. And of course, please do join us in the future for future frontline gastroenterology podcasts.